Good morning, everybody. If you crack open your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, chapter 1, that's where we're going to hang out this morning. And that's page 380 in your pew Bible, if you're using the, the Bible I'm using. And uh, we're going to read the first uh, 17 verses. I have 15 up there. 17 verses together, and then we'll pray. It says this. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not consider Alas, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a brood of evildoers, children who are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked to anger the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away backward. Why should you be stricken again? You will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick. The whole heart faints. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been closed or bound up or soothed with ointment. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Strangers devour your land in your presence, and it is desolate as overthrown by strangers. So the daughter of Zion is left as a booth in a vineyard, as a hut in a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city, unless the Lord of hosts had left us a very small remnant. We would have become like Sodom. We would have been made like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams, the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who is required this from your hand to trample my courts. Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons and the Sabbaths and the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They are trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Put away the evil from your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. And we'll read verse 18 also. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your skin sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, just thank you so much for your word this morning. We thank you that we can assemble on a morning like this and consider these thoughts from so long ago, yet so relevant today. And Lord, just ask that if any of us have developed any resistance in our hearts, if they become callous to you, 
Not that we've lost our salvation, but we've lost our way. That we've become prodigal, Lord. I pray that this would be a calling back home. That you would use your word as a hammer, as a fire, to soften our hearts and bring us before you, open and honest. And would you do that wonderful work that's mysterious to us, whereby your Holy Spirit, you take your word and apply it to our hearts. We thank you for this. In Christ's name, amen. I'd like to read everyone a poem that'll probably be familiar to, to most people in here. It's called Invictus. It says, Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. The first two times I heard this poem were at graduation commencement ceremonies. I'm sure that's probably where most of you have heard it too. It's one of the most cited poems of all time. Those familiar with me know I love poetry. It's, it's one of my most favorite things. Many of you are familiar with the name Timothy McVeigh. Timothy McVeigh was the man responsible for 168 deaths in the Oklahoma City bombing. He was sentenced to death for his heinous crime on June 11, 2001. And what words did he choose to be his last? He showed no remorse, not one day. He smiled often. When he was led to his execution, he said nothing. No, I'm sorry. No, I apologize for the hurts that I caused so many families. Instead, he handed a slip of paper to a spokesperson with these words. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. While the poet William Ernest Hensley may or may not have intended the poem to be used in this way, the sentiment rings through the corridors of time and affects us even this morning. We hear it from screams of riots in the streets two years ago. I am the captain of my soul. I am the master of my fate. We hear the music we listen to. It's in the movies we watch. There it is. It's the cry of man for self-autonomy. I'm the one in control of my destiny. I'm the one in control of my future. I'm the boss. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. It's a complete and total rejection of authority. It's assuming on ourselves that which we were not designed to have on ourselves. To be the master of our fate, the captain of our soul. And sadly, sadly, though this ideology of I am the ultimate decider of my fate, I am in control of my destiny, although it seems to be prevalent so much in today's culture, the church is not immune to it. We hear it everywhere. We, we see Big-name preachers stand up, and they're teaching this same rubbish, this same nonsense, this same garbage. 
Isaiah addresses us this morning, and I have three points because I'm a Baptist, and that's what Baptist preachers do is preach three points. Point number one, ignorance is not bliss. Point number two, compliance is not worship. And point number three, Christ is the authority. I had trouble coming up with a sermon title for this that's never been a problem for me before. Um, I do not know anyone in here as well as I would like to. Uh, the first sermon title I picked was When God Hates Your Worship, and I thought that might be a little abrupt. And then it was Worthless Worship, and I thought that was a little abrupt too, so I went with the context of worship. So these are all subheadings. So point number one, ignorance is not bliss. So Isaiah was a preacher that began preaching somewhere around 740 B.C. He was called to preach, to preach in a time when things were actually looking pretty good for the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom, not so much. Already Assyria had a heavy hand up there, and they were just a few years away from being hauled off into exile. In the annals of history, the northern kingdom of Judah is pretty much already done. So Isaiah steps in to preach to this southern kingdom, to preach to this area that houses Jerusalem, that houses the, the promises. And as he comes, he comes to a people unwilling to listen. And he preaches this message, which we read this morning, which seems kind of out of place. He says things like cities burned with fire, the head being sick, the heart being faint. This message doesn't seem to add up to what the actuality is, to what they're actually perceiving around them. What well, seems like things are good. The leader at that time, as already mentioned, was a man named Uzziah. If you read through uh, the book of 2 Kings, he's also called Azariah. There are some different uh, talks about why that is, but we're going to go with Uzziah this morning because that's what's in front of us. And Uzziah, as we read of his account throughout Kings and Chronicles, he's given an evaluation from God that I think we all ought to, to want on ourselves. We all ought to desire, and that's that he did right in the eyes of God. How awesome is that? Isaiah 2.22 says, Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. Of what regard is he? Think for a second. If at the end of the day, our lives were lived to an audience of one, if all we cared about was well done, good and faithful servant, and we have in the scriptures that Uzziah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, wouldn't that be wonderful to have on your tombstone? Jason was a lot of things, but he did right in the eyes of the Lord. Love that. What did he do? Well, his father Amaziah had fully embraced idolatry toward the end of his days, and because of that, there was a lot of things that were poured out upon the, the southern kingdom. They had been attacked by the northern kingdom and Syria, and they had a lot of things weighing down heavily on them. So the walls, as the pastor mentioned this morning, walls being security in ancient times, had been torn down. Some people had been taken captive. So when Uzziah comes in, Uzziah comes in and starts rebuilding things. He rebuilds the army. He starts digging new wells. Now there are new sources of water. We take that for granted today. There are places where they can go and get water where they couldn't before. He refortifies the walls. He builds towers for lookouts. And a mystery, which I'm still trying to solve, he builds what we're told in the scriptures, machines of war. Don't really know what that is. It's an interesting conversation to have with people. But things are looking up. Agriculturally, they are building up. There's food for people now. 
So from the original hearer, looking at the way things were, it looks like things are getting better. So Isaiah, what in the world are you talking about? Y'all see how this sermon may have felt a little out of place? Looking around, things are getting better, and now you're here saying our cities are burned with fire? Those are in days past. What are you talking about? But a closer look into our passage this morning shows us that this sermon is dead on. I love Isaiah because he doesn't pull any punches. He's not, the, he's not the soft preacher. He just gives it like it is. Here is what's happening. He pulls no punches. Ultimately, all things boil down with Israel at this point, the southern kingdom, to a problem with authority. A problem with who they surrender themselves to. They have no problem being called God's children, but they have rejected his rule in their lives. So to start off with, let's start in verse 2. It says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. Of this verse, the pastoral commentator Matthew Henry says, Sooner will the inanimate creatures here who observe the law and answer the end of their creation than this stupid and senseless people. The comparisons that we have here are not flattering. It's not flattering to be compared to a sheep, really, either, but it's very true. And here in this place, he does a comparison with an ox and a donkey. He says the ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know my people do not consider. You know, donkeys can be stubborn, but in the end of the day, they know who feeds them. An ox, anyone who raises cows, no, cows can be stubborn. You throw that hay out there and they come around and they know who their master is, they know who feeds them. Israel has fallen astray. They no longer recognize God as the authority because they are the masters of their fate and the captains of their souls. Verses 4 through 6. Alas, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a brood of evildoers, children who are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked to anger the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away backward. Why should you be stricken again? You will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick. The whole heart faints. From the sole of the foot, even to its head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. And they have not been closed or bound up or soothed with ointment. So for context, Uzziah, although he bears that inscription that we already spoke of, saying that he did right in the eyes of the Lord, he also has a couple of nasty marks on his record, too. You see, one of the issues that he had was he became proud, and he walked into the temple, and he decided he was going to offer incense to God. Problem being, that's not the king's job. That's the priest's job. Amen? That is not the king's job. So when some brave priests came in, 81 of them, and called him out on it, he was struck with leprosy. He lived that way for the rest of his time. Much of his life would be lived in a separate citadel while his son, Jotham, had reigned in his place. He reigned through his son. So his first issue is he offered incense in the temple, a job only for priests, not for the king. And his second thing that he did wrong 
We find in 2 Kings 15, let me read that. In the 27th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Azariah, also known as Uzziah, the son of Amaziah, king of Judah, became king. He was 16 years old when he became king. How many of you have 16-year-olds? You were scared to death when they started driving. With me? 16-year-old king. And he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done, except that the high places were not removed, and the people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. So you see, it's all kind of coming into clarity now, isn't it? We're kind of seeing the picture very, very clearly in front of us. Yes, they're rebuilding things. Yes, things seem to be getting better as, as opposed to his father Amaziah's end of his reign. However, the people are still worshiping idols. Their heart still does not belong to Yahweh. They have still given themselves over to what they want because they're the bosses. They are the ones in control. Idolatry was in the land. It's amazing. It's amazing that we always say that term, which at times proves true, ignorance is bliss, but not in this case. They're ignorant of what's actually happening because they choose to be. If you look at verse 5, this is very important for our understanding this morning. Why should you be stricken again? You will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick. The whole heart faints. From the sole of the foot to the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been closed or bound up or soothed with ointment. It's no mystery here that they have rejected God's authority. So what are we talking about here? Well, interestingly, when we see this seeming poetic language used as head and heart, it seems mysterious to us, but Isaiah clears that up for us, as well as history. When we're talking about the head, typically we're talking about a nation's capital, and within that capital, the king. Isaiah clears this up in chapter 7, verses 8 and 9. He says, For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is reason. Reason was the king at the time. It says in verse 9, the head of Ephraim is Samaria, capital of northern kingdom. And the head of Samaria is Remaliah's son. If you will not believe, surely you will not be established, it goes on to say. So looking at the fact that the head is sick and the heart is faint, we can quickly surmise your answer is not coming from your nation's capital. That's a good message for us this morning. In a nation that's seeming to crumble around us, Washington, D.C. is not our answer, folks. It is not going to come from the president. It is not going to come from Congress. It is not going to come from the Supreme Court. We need to seek God Almighty. Stop being the masters of our fate. Stop being the captain of our soul. Our nation needs to turn. But that's another sermon. The point? The answer is not coming from this king. God says the heart is faint. You know, the heart, historically, has always been the nation's center. If you attack the capital, you win the nation. This is why it was, uh, such great lengths were taken to make sure that it was a city on a hill. It was surrounded by walls. That the army lived in those areas. That the king was in the center 
if you take that area, you take the nation, and Isaiah says the answer's not coming from there. It's sick. It's faint. It's weak. He goes on to describe their condition as battered and bruised. And for the fourth time, he's saying putrefying. Probably not many people have heard that word come out of their Bible much this week, but there it is. Ignorance is not bliss. They had abandoned God as their authority, and what are the results? Your country lies desolate, it says in verse 7. Your country lies desolate. Oh, wait a minute. Israel is whose chosen people? God's chosen people. Isn't it, isn't it his country? No, he says, your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Strangers devour your, devour your land in your presence. It is desolate as overthrown by strangers. So the daughter of Zion is left as a booth in a vineyard, as a hut in a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. See, they think that because their nation is being built back up, that things are good. But there's inward rot. We've had several large trees fall down on our property over the past year that we've been here. And um, two of them I, I was totally expecting to fall down. One of them farther out, I, I was not. It looked like a super healthy tree. It was a red oak. It just beautiful. I mean, I didn't count the rings on it, but this thing is, is well over 100 years old. So tall, 80, 90 feet. And this thing fell over with a boom. What could have caused this? Well, when I got up closer and looked, the inside of it was completely and totally rotted. It looked nice from the outside. It looked like a nice tree. Someday I'll cut that down and make my, make my grandchildren something out of it, but I couldn't do that. It's rotted from the inside out. This is what we're speaking of here this morning. They become totally unprotected. Uzziah couldn't save them. Not from what they had built for themselves. They're like a booth in a vineyard. So at that time that we're speaking of, you needed to protect your food because people might come after it. So people would set up a booth in the middle of a vineyard to go out there and protect their vineyard. The only problem is, without surrounding walls, if you are in the booth in the middle of a vineyard, you may be able to protect the vineyard, but who protects you? No one or a hut in a cucumber field. Cucumbers don't grow too awful tall if you don't have something for them to climb up. They're left defenseless, weak. While a man could stand out there and protect his produce, there's nothing to protect him. This is exactly where they are today. Judah needed more than stone and mortar to protect them, but they cling to their sin in every attack. The only reason that people were left for Isaiah to preach to you was because of God's mercy, we're told. It says very, very clearly in verse 9, unless the Lord of hosts had left us a very small remnant, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been made like Gomorrah. Again, this may seem kind of strange for the people to hear. We're not a remnant. Look at all the people that are around here. Well, we need to remember history. History was 12 nations as one, not one in the south. Amen? So now we have this split. So literally, Judah has become the remnant. Understand, at this point in history, in, in history of the world, Israel is already on its way out. Not even counted. 
All that's left is Judah. Judah is the remnant. Judah is what remains from the children of Israel. And friends, ignorance is not bliss. Point number two, compliance is not worship. So the people of God were ignorant of the why of their circumstances, and to some degree, they were ignorant of the existence of their wounds. But it's because they rejected God's authority. Once again, I'm going to lean in on this. It's because they were the captain of their souls. Continuing the relation of these sinful people to Sodom and Gomorrah, God's word says this, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. Hold on a second here. Who commanded that they sacrifice bulls and rams and goats? God. So why has he changed his mind? Has he gone crazy? What's happened with God's perspective on their doings? Is blood no longer uh, on, on a fire, a pleasing aroma to God? Leviticus 4.14 says, When the sin which they have committed becomes known, then the assembly shall offer a young bull for the sin and bring it before the tabernacle of meeting. So why would God now say, why at this point in human history would he say, that's an abomination to me? I don't take delight in your sacrifices, in the blood of bulls, of lambs, of goats. Why? Let's read on. Verse 12. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. Who commanded that they bring sacrifices? Who commanded that they burn incense? All God's people said, God did. Reading on, the new moons, the Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity with sacred meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They are trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Who commanded the celebrating of, of new moons? Was that a Pharisee thing? No, that was God. Numbers 28, starting in verse 11, at the beginnings of your months, you shall present a burnt offering to the Lord. Wait, the beginning of your months? Two young bulls, one ram, seven lambs in the first year without blemish. And it goes on with what this offering is and, and what's required. Now, if they follow this command, God's soul hates this? Seems strange. And the calling of assemblies, he says he cannot endure. Numbers 10, verse 1, says this. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Make two silver trumpets for yourself. You should make them out of hammered work. You should use them for calling the congregation and for directing the movement of camps. When they blow both of them, all the congregation shall gather before you at the tent of the tabernacle meeting. Did they miss something? Is something gone from their worship? Let's dive just a little bit deeper into the language. Verse 12, let's, let's look at this one more time. When you come to appear before me, here it is, 
Who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and sacred meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They are trouble to me. I'm weary of bearing them. The end of verse 15 says, Your hands are full of blood. Y'all see what happened here? They had rejected God's authority and went on pretending as if they didn't. Hypocrisy is called out all over in the Bible. Jesus called out the hypocrites, didn't he? And here is Isaiah telling these people, why are you doing these things? What's the real reason behind it? Remember in Matthew 15, Jesus spoke to the Pharisees, quoting Isaiah, talking about the same issue. In verse 1 of chapter 15, it says this, Then the scribes and Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus, saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. He said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? For the commandment, saying, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses his father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, Whoever says to his father or mother, Whatever profit you have received from me is a gift to God. Then he need not honor his father or mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition, hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying this, These people draw near to me with their mouth, and they honor me with their lips. Their heart is far from me. In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. The Pharisees were not worshiping, they were complying. I can't help but wonder. We live in this wonderfully free nation, and I'm going to tell you, in East Tennessee, there's a church about every couple feet. I'd like to think that it's that way across the nation, and I can't help but wonder, just closing my eyes and thinking, how many people are sitting in pews this morning out of compliance instead of worship? How many people show up because that's what the people of God do? God wants more than us to warm up you this morning. He wants when we sing these songs for it to be more than just words rolling off our lips, more than just a recitation. He wants it to come from our hearts. He wants to be our authority. The next few verses outline what he wants to see. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek to do justice, rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow. So I just want to start off by saying verses 16 and 17 are not salvific in any way. People can do these things all day long and it ain't going to get you to heaven. It was amazing this morning's Sunday school lesson seemed to like just lead into all this downstairs so I, I thank pastor for that uh, God knew what he was doing he spoke of this this morning as uh, being uh, the way that the church shined because where the people of God are present these social justices these true social justices are present they are seen they are observed what Isaiah gives us isn't a self-help plan 
when the triune God is the only Lord, the only captain of our souls, these things will be evident. The good works that Ephesians tells us Christ prepared before the foundations, that's what we're talking about here. They will be evident. The wake of a surrendered body should change society. In the wake of a church, of a group of true believers, passing through a town should leave things differently. We should see these things. They should be evident. They will be evident. We ought to see change. The works outlined here, compliance is not worship. So ignorance is not bliss. Compliance is not worship. Worship must come from a heart surrendered to the authority. And by way of reminder, in case any of us think that this is not for us this morning, I found myself under that conviction a couple weeks ago, thinking, oh, well, I have the Spirit now. This is no worry for me. Well, did not the Apostle Peter have the Spirit when Paul had to pull him down and rebuke him publicly in Galatians? Paul recounts it. We need to keep our eyes on Christ. Point number three, Christ is the authority. I want to use this last point just to read these last few verses and then point us to some New Testament passages that, that really bring this right in front of our eyes. It says this, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are like crimson, they shall be as wool. Hear the words of our triune God there. Is it conditional? If you, then I'll. If you, then no. He gives us a clear statement. Let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Your sins shall be white as snow. They shall be as wool. There's no condition. God says, listen, this is what I'm going to do. Here's what I'm going to do. Ephesians 1.7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, by his grace. Colossians 1.20, And by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Hebrews 9.12, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. 1 Peter 18 through 19, 1, 18 through 19, excuse me, says, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Christ has fulfilled his promise. Christ has fulfilled his promise. This morning, the call, the command that I want to point everyone's attention to of Scripture is to examine our own hearts. What is our worship like? The title that I was afraid to use, When God Hates Your Worship, is that offensive to us? 
Maybe it should be. Is our worship worthless? Is that offensive to us? Maybe we should be a little offended by that. I want to just pray in closing, and I just want to pray for a few groups that came to my mind. First and foremost, as always, maybe there are some here who have not surrendered to Christ. You feel comfortable in saying and believing and telling other people that you are the ultimate decider of what's happening to you. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. I want to pray this morning that these words really hit home. That it's the wake-up call that God has been working on in your life. May this be the comma in your sentence. Maybe there are those today that uh, have went prodigal. It's not that you're not a believer anymore. It's not that you're not saved. It's, it's just that you've lost your way a little bit. Maybe worship to you has become just a song or what you do because that's what Christians do on Sunday morning, right? We show up. I want to pray. And for others, friends, we're, we're busy. And the more time goes on, the more access we have to constant technology and constant communication, the busier we get. And it's so easy when we stray away from listening to what God says to become distracted and to turn our backs on God's authority and think that we have all things on our plate and we have to handle everything and give nothing to him at all. And maybe this can be the morning where once again we acknowledge and surrender to the only master of our fate and captain of our souls who offers redemption only by his blood. Let us uh, pray toward that end. Heavenly Father, it's not lightly that we call you Lord this morning, and if it is, Lord, we pray for some course correction in our lives. We stray. Our hearts are prone to wander, yet you call us to repentance. You call us to confess our sins, and you promise us you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins. God, forgive our stubborn hearts for wanting to micromanage every little thing in our lives as if we had some sort of superpower or control. Cleanse us from the desire for self-autonomy. Cleanse us from the desire for self-rule. Lord, by, by your grace, would you draw us near to you? We thank you for this. In Jesus' precious name, amen.